Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that brings you all things hematology every single time. This is your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all things hematology. Today's podcast is really timely. It is with Dr. Sagar Loniel, who is an internationally recognized leader and an authority in the field of multiple myeloma. Dr. Loniel also is the chief medical officer at the Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University. Uh, he's a professor and the chair of the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's the Anne and Bernard Gray Family Chair in Cancer. He is also the editor-in-chief of Blood Cancers Today, which is the sponsor of the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that yours truly is hosting. I'm really pleased to have Dr. Loniel on today's podcast. We are going to talk about multiple myeloma, and the field of myeloma has changed drastically, but we are going to focus specifically on frontline therapy, a little bit of maintenance, a trickle of minimum residual disease, and a bit of smoldering myeloma. So hopefully your appetite will be wet to learn more about multiple myeloma and to check out blood cancers today. It is my pleasure to host Dr. Sagar Loniel on the Hemang Pulse. Tiger, welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that brings you everything hematology. Thank you, Chaddy. It's great to be here, and I think uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. A little bit about you in terms of, uh, you've been doing myeloma, what, for a couple of decades? Uh, 20 years, yeah. Yeah, I actually uh, grew up wanting to be a leukemia doctor and a transplanter, and uh, about 2001, 2002, had a fortuitous run-in with Dr. Anderson, who talked me out of leukemia and transplant and said, focus on myeloma, and it's uh, it's been uh, great from there. So, yeah, about 20 years. So, Sagar, a lot of things have changed uh, in myeloma. Obviously, I don't need to tell you what everybody knows, um, but it, it's, in my view, it's really the the disease is one of the poster children of advances in science. Because when I was in residency, median survival was three to five years, and it was melphalan or VAD followed by autotransplant. And things have changed. And I know it's we have short time, so we have to pick a theme to focus on. And I thought probably focusing on your approach to frontline therapy in myeloma patients and, and just more along the lines, you know, when you have a new patient with myeloma, we you guys taught us a lot about risk stratification. Tell us a little about this and whether this changes how you manage patients. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. And I think there's been a lot of debate in the last uh, few years about the role of risk stratification and choosing initial induction therapy. Our approach had always been to use something like VRD as our initial induction therapy for both standard risk and high risk, and then choose something different in the maintenance setting post-transplant to try and be the risk-directed therapy. And so for us, single-agent lenalidomide was our maintenance for the standard risk. And then for the high-risk patients, VRD maintenance and consolidation for three years was the way that we approached this. And we initially published this data back in 2013 showing improved survival from other um, contemporary approaches to the management of high-risk disease. And then uh, published most recently in the RVD 1000 series in JCO, where the median PFS and overall survival for high risk was better than most others had seen. Uh, and the median PFS and OS for standard risk was 80 months as PFS 
and over 14 years for expected overall survival. So contrast that with what you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast with 2.5 to three years. In about 20 years now, we've, we've, we've more than tripled that uh, with the use of triple therapy, aggressive consolidation, and then continuous lenalidomide maintenance. I think the availability of anti-CD38 antibodies has thrown a lot of this into the into confusion. I think the presence of carfilzomib as an alternative proteasome inhibitor has also further confused uh, the field. Uh, but I can tell you in general, our approach for standard risk is again, DARA plus VRD with the goal of trying to deepen the response early, consolidate everybody with a transplant, and then go right now with single agent lenalidomide maintenance. The high risk is, is an interesting discussion because even in our own group, I think we're split 50-50. There's a group that says DARA VRD for that for those patients as well. There's a group that says, no, let's do KRD uh, because we know you can more consistently deliver the carfilzomib perhaps than the bortezomib in a, in a higher risk patient, and that's important. But where we agree on is the post-transplant maintenance, which is KRD for three years for everybody. So I think it is evolving. I think the, the PI of choice is really the question, and more importantly, whether or not you add an anti-CD38 to the high risk or not, that's an area where there, I think there's a lot of discussion. Just to level set, when, when you say high risk and, and standard yeah. risk, are we specifically talking chromosomes, cytogenetics? Like what, 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 what's a high risk? Yeah, so I think we're typically looking at FISH to guide some of this. Uh, patients that have 17P deletion, patients that have 414 translocation, patients that have um, uh, 1416 or 1420 translocation, uh, patients that have more than three copies of 1Q. And I think this is an important distinction. And what's frustrating me is when I see FISH reports from outside labs for patients that I'm seeing, they'll say um, just extra copies. They're not telling you how many. And I think it's important that three copies when you're using either VRD or KRD may not necessarily be a negative prognostic factor on its own, but more than three, so four or more likely does have some risk impact as well. I think there are other criteria that many of us use or don't use. And the one that I'd like to bring up that's an old school one is the use of cytogenetics. We still get karyotypes on patients and we had a date, we had data at ASCO uh, where we demonstrated that patients with karyotypic abnormalities identified that 15% of myelomas that are proliferative and those are traditionally high risk. And then there are things like patients who present with extramedullary disease, high LDH, or just other clinical signs that tell you this is not going to go well. Uh, those are other patients that we might add to that definition. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, that's an important definition and, and actually probably underscores that every myeloma patient needs to have karyotype plus fish for particular translocations. You did mention some differences in how you approach high-risk and standard risk, and some of it is the deratumumab some of it, whether you use carfilzomib versus uh, bortezomib. Um, several questions on that. I think a lot of the data, and again, this is not myeloma expert. I'm just trying to think, you mentioned the, the from O13 and O12. I mean, they're older data. At that time, MRD was not being used, minimal visual disease. And I know it's like I'm opening a can of, I don't know what's going on there. But my question is, a, are you checking MRDs on these patients, not on clinical trial, in routine practice? And B, could you make an argument if you have a patient who is MRD negative? I don't know what the chances are of MRD negativity after induction. 
Do I need three years of maintenance? Do I need lenalidomide? I mean, can I spare these patients the toxicity, financial side effects if they're MRD negative? So I think the question about uh, timing of MRD and sustained MRD negativity is one that the field is beginning to coalesce around. So one of the areas where I feel uncomfortable making clear claims about using MRD to make treatment decisions is the idea that it doesn't matter when you get it, that there are some trials that report out at any time. There's some trials that report out at six months or 12 months, what's the MRD negativity rate. I think the FDA wants us to use consistent time points where we measure MRD, not just some random time where we get a single bone marrow and it may or may not be a good sample and we happen to say MRD negativity. The second piece of that is what's more important to me is not a single time point, but sustained MRD negativity. Uh, if you go back really old school to uh, Arkansas data from Bart Barlogi, what he showed was that it's not just CR, but CR duration that really mattered as a prognostic feature. And there were subsets of patients, most of whom were high risk, who achieved a CR and then lost it. And those patients actually did worse than anybody else. So I think the idea of sustained MRD negativity is probably more important than achieving MRD negativity. And I don't think we should be prepared to make treatment decisions on a single value at an early time point. I realize that that contradicts much of what is going on in the, the, the social media world around Twitter and, and, and MRD and as, as well as in the, in the press. But I think from a practical perspective, what we showed you in RVD 1000, which was just published in 2021, is that long follow-up is really important. You need to know what happens in 10 years. And I think looking at a six-month endpoint and saying, I can predict to 10 years what's going to happen is a little premature. Um, and so I'd like to see a little bit more validity on that. Now, we measure it. We don't do anything with it, but we measure it because we're trying to understand what it means over time. And now when you say, when you measure it um, in the myeloma world, are you, do, we, do you have a unified um, way to A, how you measure it and then how to define it? Because sometimes the definition of MRD changes with time. I think most of us in the U.S. are using um, uh, uh, NGS as the methodology, um, and that'll get you both 10 to the minus 5 and 10 to the minus 6. Uh, you know, in my quest to get the longest PFS up front, as well as potentially get to a curative endpoint in some patients, uh, I think 10 to the minus 6 is the right endpoint. The IMWG accepts 10 to the minus 5, uh, and I think that's because it's easier to get that level of depth more consistently. And from a regulatory perspective, 10 to the minus 5 may be fine. Uh, but if you're talking about making treatment decisions, I'm not so sure that 10 to the minus 5 is the right answer, because obviously we know that deeper is better. Yeah, I mean, I, just my simple thing, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, if, you're, if you've done the induction and you've done the autotransplant and you achieved MRD negativity, would you ever feel comfortable avoiding maintenance? And the answer you, I'm hearing today is not yet. Today, you still will go with maintenance. Absolutely. It's, it's not yet there. Sagar, you talked about carfilmazib and bortezomib a little bit, uh, that there are some uh, differences in the field still uh, between high risk and low risk. They're both, you know, proteasome inhibitors. Is like, what, why, why do you, do we have an understanding why my, one might work differently than the other? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think that it really comes down to risk benefit ratio. And we saw in the ECOG trial that randomized VRD versus KRD, there was no difference in progression-free survival. And you can argue a lot of different ways about why that may have been the case, but at the end of the day, the benefit, if there was there, was so small that you couldn't see it in a, in a thousand patient randomized trial. And so in my mind, the reason that is, is that there is some additional toxicity with carfilzomib that is not always reversible. And for the most part it is, but it does limit your ability sometimes to stay on. And in a standard risk patient population, that risk benefit ratio doesn't necessarily favor the, the, the potency that you can see with carfilzomib. In a high risk population, I think that all bets are off. We know that in high risk patients, uh, staying dose intense for a longer period of time is more important. Uh, reducing the dose of bortezomib may be more likely to occur from twice a week to once a week from 1.3 to one. You don't have to do that quite as often with carfilzomib. And the risk-benefit ratio, I think, does benefit carfilzomib in that context, at least in, in when you're talking about triplet versus triplet. When you're talking about quad versus quad, I'm not so sure that there really, again, remains that big difference between DARA VRD and DARA KRD. Um, but, but again, we haven't had head-to-head -head trials there. Following the myeloma world a little bit from a distance, uh, over the past year to year and a half, there's been a little bit of discussion whether you really need to do an autotransplant from the get-go. I forgot the name of the trial. There was something presented mm -hmm. that uh, could be asked or where the suggestion is that you could probably forego it. How do you make do you make a decision based on performance tests, young versus old? But it seems like there's a movement there that we it's okay to you have to have an autotransplant at some point, but you could wait until the second line. I'm gonna sort of modify your statement just a little bit. Um, and that is correct um, me, correct it. I'm not gonna correct you. If you because there are many uh, leaders in our field that say what you just said. Um, I, what, what I'll say is um, I think that uh, if your goal is to give patients the longest duration of first remission, there is no question that an early auto is the way to go. There's no question. The PFS is 22 months longer in a randomized trial for patients who had an early auto compared to delayed auto. And even in the delayed group, 80% didn't get an auto. So I think it's a matter of do you do it at all versus not at all. And you're, you're, you're sacrificing 22 months of PFS. Now, the argument against early transplant, meaning it doesn't matter when you do it, is that the overall survival is the same. The problem with that is, as I just told you, for a standard risk patient, the median P overall survival is 14 years. The follow-up and determination was like six and a half or seven years. They haven't hit the point yet where you really start to see survival separate. And so to the analogy I use all the time, saying there was no overall survival when it wasn't powered for OS and it, and it hasn't had enough follow-up for OS is like saying half the patients were blue. It's true. It has nothing to do with the way you should interpret the study, right? So I, I think that idea that if you achieve a deep response, you can delay transplant is a little bit misplaced. And I think it doesn't take in, it, it says, I'm, will, I'm willing to have a shorter first remission. Why would you want a shorter first remission, right? Right. And I think, you know, one of the one of the important caveats also by having a longer remission, the field is advancing fast. You don't know, you know, what you might be able to get uh, if you relapse yep. uh, sooner. Maybe the, the last uh, part uh, for the next just couple of minutes and then I'll let you go. I know you're, you're very busy, but 
just very quick i don't want to really i don't have we don't have the time to talk about smoldering myeloma because it's just a it's a whole uh, uh, thing by itself but um, how do you define high risk smoldering myeloma and then i know uh, a lot of folks are saying you don't treat outside of a clinical trial and you've been heavily involved in some of these studies so first how you define the smoldering myeloma the high risk because the low risk is probably easy and what kind of studies are you monitoring in that space? Yeah. So, you know, the high-risk smoldering uh, category, I think, is really important because we all need to have a common definition before we start doing trials in there. And the challenge with many of the large randomized trials is that we keep moving the definition. And so understanding which patients really got benefit from early intervention sometimes becomes a little challenging. So the current easiest definition to use is the 2220 criteria. Uh, and that means more than 20% plasma cells, M spike of greater than two, and free light chain ratio of greater than 20. If you've got two or three of those criteria, you fall into the high risk category. If you've only got one, you're intermediate, and if you have none, you're low risk. Uh, and so that's high risk. But what does mean high risk? It means you're going to get no, high risk. Means your risk of progressing to symptomatic myeloma within two years is somewhere between 50 and 70%. Okay. So in that group, what, what, what many of the trials have used as stated goals is reducing the development of organ damage. So we don't want patients to get a fracture. We don't want them to get renal failure. Those are patients where we think early intervention may be of some benefit. So the real question in the field is, do you do prevention, which would be low intensity therapy, or do you go for curative intent? And there are many who say, well, it's earlier in the disease course, you should go for curative intent. That's a testable hypothesis. And there were two trials that did that, the ASCENT trial and the GEM-CESAR trial that gave patients KRD, transplant, KRD, and then maintenance for two to three years. So treated them as if they were myeloma. And there are a group of MRD negative patients in that. But if you look at just biochemical relapse, it looks like a myeloma curve. So it doesn't appear on the surface that that more intensive approach has really changed the natural history compared to letting them develop some level of myeloma. Now, on the other hand, the less intensive approach is either single agent LAN, LANDEX, like the Spanish did, or the current ECOG trial, which is DARA LANDEX versus LANDEX. Those are more on the prevention side and the low intensity side. And really the goal there is, can you suppress the clone, activate immune function, and perhaps delay the time to developing myeloma? And if you look at the ECOG trial, the Spanish myeloma trial, Cesar, Gem Cesar, and Ascent, the three-year risk of progression to myeloma is almost 90% in all three, meaning 90% have not progressed at three years. So you can give a bucket of chemo or you can give a pill and you end up at the same point in three years. Now, what we don't know is whether the more intensive therapies have a plateau at some point. And if that's the case, then maybe there is benefit. But we got to figure out who that is, because that's a much more intensive approach. And it does induce a lot of side effects and other potential complications. So I think that's sort of the balance in where we are in 2023. But, but in real life, in clinical, in routine clinical practice today, yeah. you guys are not treating smoldering myeloma, whether it's high risk or low risk, or are you treating them outside of a clinical trial? Yeah. 
Yeah, so if it's a high-risk smoldering patient, I usually talk to the patient at length, tell them about the two randomized trials that show pretty significant reduction in risk of progression, and say, are you as a patient in the mindset that says, you know there's something there and you're going to leave it alone, that makes me very uncomfortable, or the other side of the coin, which is you know there's something there, you're telling me I can leave it alone for a little longer, I want to leave it alone as long as I can. So when I have that discussion with the patient, I figure out which of the two camps does that patient fall into, and I guide them down what would be the appropriate approach based on where their mentality is. So people that say I'm dogmatic and I tell people you all have to do something, that's not true. We have a discussion with the patient and ultimately understand what their goals of therapy are and how our data can really address that. I think some of the questions when it comes to smoldering was when you do these two arms, why there's no observation arm, why there's no arm, even in the higher risk where it says like arm A, arm B, and arm C is observation. So you could at least answer definitively that these patients should not be observed, kind of. Yeah. So there are two randomized trials that had observation as the control arm and demonstrated superiority of the early intervention. So I sort of think that ship has sailed. We randomized over almost 400 patients to treatment versus observation. I think that question is answered. Anything else before I let you go, Sagar? And I mean, um, we have no time to talk about relapse disease. That's for another podcast. Uh, but I think we probably simplified, hopefully, the approach to frontline. Anything I should have asked you that I completely forgot? No, there's a great discussion. I think it's a good uh, uh, bite of important data, and I hopefully it'll whet people's appetites to come to uh, blood cancers today and see some of the new updates that are coming out in each issue and uh, see the editorials and the letters and the discussions, because it's really a, a field ripe with new information. Dr. Sagar Lonil, thank you so much for being on the Hemon Pulse. Thank you.